Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. If we're in the book of Romans, we... Uh, two weeks ago began this series, and you know I challenged you that um, in this series, at least for me, when I was ministering, I was going to do something different, and that is that I was going to kind of strip away the sermonizing, if you will, the antidotes, and go straight verse by verse, teach you through the chapter. And we did that two weeks ago, Romans chapter 1. We looked at a really kind of long, extended introduction of the book as a whole, Paul the Apostle. Pastor Chad last week looked at Romans 3. But then at the end of the message, he went on into four, and he went on into the beginning of five. Today, the assignment is Romans chapter eight, Romans chapter eight. And so if you didn't uh, want the sermon card, you'll see there's a QR code. You can follow along there as well. But I'd love for you, if you have an actual Bible, to open it, Romans chapter eight. I'm not sure if you've heard the name Peter Danek before. Peter Danek was a Russian immigrant who fled to America in 1911 to escape the, the communist revolution. He comes to America, and shortly after arriving in Chicago, he goes to the Moody Bible Institute, and then ultimately was powerfully used by God later on in life. But he tells this great story about his escape from Russia. So his parents, Peter's parents, had sacrificed everything to get him a boat ticket to America. So they literally sell everything they have. They want him to get to America to escape the communist revolution. And they buy him a ticket. He gets on a boat. Okay, He gets on the boat with virtually nothing, no money, just a, a knapsack with a little bit, a few clothes in it. His mom had stuffed at the last minute some stale hard bread in his bag for him to eat on the journey. He said later on in his life that throughout the journey, he would often look in on everyone in the dining hall on his way across you know, the Pacific Ocean, and he was just wishing he could have some of the glorious meals that they were encountering, right, that they were enjoying. Well, some of the sailors, after days into the trip, told him that if he helped them with their work, that he could eat what they ate. So you come help us, and it's still very meager portions. We're talking about just a little bit of food, and yet you know, this kind of gruel and, and hardtack type of stuff, but it was at least a whole lot better than moldy bread, so he does it, and he gets a few more morsels of bread. He says of the story, it wasn't until the last day of the trip that he realized three full meals a day came with the purchase of his ticket. But he said, because I couldn't read what was written on the ticket, I did not know what I was entitled to. The Apostle Paul is going to tell you in Romans chapter 8, most Christians never live out their spiritual journey that way. We know that receiving Christ as Savior grants us a ticket to heaven, a.k.a. America, a.k.a. out of communist revolution, but we don't fully understand all of the benefits that are included in the price of the ticket. So Romans chapter 8 is where we're beginning. Would you pray with me one more time? Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity to gather, to look at your word, to apply it to our hearts. We find, Lord, in America, we're in a very unique time, Lord, but we're also in a very unique setting where we as a church are gathering together to go through this book, this great, I mean, amazing epistle, Lord, verse by verse, Lord, to 
to an opportunity that most people in the world don't have or either they don't take advantage of. And Lord, you've given that to us. So we consider ourselves blessed this morning that we have the time afforded to us, Lord, to make sure we dig deep and apply the truth of your word to our lives. We pray that you will strengthen us. We pray that you'll direct us. You know the issues that every person in here deals with. You know the direction that we're looking for from you, the strength we need to serve you, the discernment, the health. You know every, every bit of all of our needs. And we're so grateful, Lord, that we can roll them over onto you. And Lord, you're going to provide. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. January 1, 1863, a president of the United States, then Abraham Lincoln, he signed an edict proclaiming that the slaves in the Confederate States were finally free. What he signed was what we call the Emancipation Proclamation. 2,000 years ago, God signed our Emancipation Proclamation on a cross just outside of the eastern side of Jerusalem called the Damascus Gate, where his son went to die for our sins. We who were slaves of sin, in fact, anyone who was born would be a slave of sin and would desire freedom. Emancipation would come from that moment forward. The edict, though, was not signed with pen. The edict was signed by blood. And Romans chapter 8, as I said, was two weeks ago, was the chapter I've been waiting to get to because it's one of the greatest chapters in all of Holy Scripture. All of Holy Scripture. It can be said that Romans 8 is the chapter of chapters for the believer. I suppose if it were a golden ring, that the book of Romans would be the diamond on that golden ring. And Romans chapter 8 would be the sparkle on the diamond of that golden ring. We could say that Romans 8 is the Mount Everest of the New Testament text. It's the chapter that if you spend any time reading all through the book of Romans, you come to dearly love. It's one of the most popular passages in all of Scripture. And by God's grace, I'm going to attempt to go through just this one chapter today. One of the reasons we love this chapter is because of how it begins and how it ends. And everything in between just adds to it. So it begins with no condemnation and it ends with no judgment or no separation. So we have no condemnation before God and we can't be separated from the love, love of God. No condemnation, that's one book in. No separation, that's the other book in. So verse 1, if you got your Bible open. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's verse 1, book in. Now look at verse 38, the other book in. Don't worry, I'm going to go back and read all the other verses. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No condemnation, no separation. Though the chapter begins, there is therefore now no condemnation that therefore takes us back a few verses and the thought really begins in chapter 7, verse 22, but I'm just going to have you look at verse 24. That's why I ask you to, to keep the Bible open if you can. I want you to see the contrast because chapter 7 is a miserable chapter. It's one of the most miserable chapters in all of Scripture. It really is. It's just like, man, like, man, Paul is painting a dark picture of himself, and he's painting a really dark picture of humanity. So he says this, verse 24, Oh, wretched man that I am, Paul says. Like, what a statement, right? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's as if Paul is carrying around a dead carcass. It's rotting. 
It's a carcass. It's strapped to his back. He refers to it as the body of death, his old nature, the nature he was born with, the nature that's separated from God, okay? Kind of also combined with his flesh. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That sort of sums up, that's sort of the pinnacle remark of chapter 7. The chapter's filled with desperation. It's filled with this defeat. And no sooner does he ask the question than he answers the question. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25 is the answer. I think God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the answer. That's the answer. I'm a wretched man. Who's going to deliver me? Jesus Christ our Lord will deliver you. He'll deliver me. He is the one. And then there is therefore now no condemnation. Notice that. No condemnation. Now, just a little bit of review. Go back a few verses, chapter 7, verse 15, okay? Paul, the apostle, in chapter 7, verse 15, uses the personal pronouns 47 times in one chapter. 47 personal pronouns in chapter 7. I, 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 me, 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 my, 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 mine, 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 mine. Very self-focused. Very myopic, only able to see himself. I'm going to em- emphasize them. You ready? Verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, I do not practice. But what I hate, I do. If I, then I do it. What I will not want to do. Notice this. But he says, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who does it, but it is sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells for to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will do, I do not do. It is a total chapter of self-focus. He's only myopically able to see himself. This guy has an eye disease. I, 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 I. He has an overdose of vitamin I. Very, very self-focused. And as we mentioned last time, Paul, listen to me very carefully, is being very honest about the struggle that he himself had with the old nature that we all had, that we're born into. So chapter 7, especially with that pinnacle nature of verse 24, becomes one of the most depressing sections of all of Scripture, especially in the book of Romans. Chapter 7 is all about the chains of bondage, the slavery we have have to the past. But, and that's a big but, in chapter 8, you hear those chains falling down. I mean, chains start breaking. And right out of the gate, he begins, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, the literal way to write verse 1 would be this. There is therefore now not one condemnation. It's not great English, but it's great theology. There's not one ounce of condemnation that can be leveled against the child of God whose slate has been wiped clean through Jesus Christ our Lord, our great emancipator. No condemnation. I wish, in fact, our newest translations would go back to that. There is therefore now not one condemnation. Now, what you should do in your Bible is after Jesus, you'll see there's a comma. If your translation's like mine, your translation has a comma. The New King James has a comma. You should put a period. The verse ends there. Now, let me tell you what's happened in translation. The second part of the verse, some of us actually don't believe belongs there. I am included in that. I think the way it read in the original, it said that Paul Penn is there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, period. Period. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, why is the second part there? 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You say, why is it there? You should be wondering that. I'm glad you asked because the answer for you is found in verse four. Verse four says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Same little phrase you see in 1b. So what we believe happened was that when Paul originally wrote this, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, period. Paul kept writing and he got to verse four and he legitimately wrote that statement in verse four, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. But in ancient times, they did not antiquity have Microsoft Word. They could not highlight a verse. They could not copy it and paste it. So they had to write or every script, manuscript by hand. And it would seem that the way it is believed is that the scribe of Paul took the end of verse four and he wrote in the margin on the script in a little footnote, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Because he wanted to show the reader there's a relationship between verse one and verse four. He's describing the same person. Later on, since there wasn't still Microsoft Word and you couldn't highlight, copy, and paste, but you had to write everything by hand, another scribe saw the footnote in the margins and said, "Uh uh-oh, somebody left this out of verse one. And so he included it in verse one. Now you're wondering, well, how do you know that? You could have just made that stuff up. We know that because we have collectively, when I say we, humanity has found older manuscripts, 5,200 of them to be exact, and the older manuscripts, none of them have the second part of verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ, period. And it is so important for you to make that distinction because if you keep that little phrase in, you're going to keep looking inward. You're going to dismiss yourself from that verse because you're going to say you're walking according to the flesh and not the spirit. You're going to constantly be, man, this is better than you're letting on this morning. You're going to constantly be looking inward. You're going to constantly be going back to chapter seven. You're going to constantly look at I. You're going to constantly look at me, constantly look at my. Because listen, two hours ago, I didn't walk in the spirit when I gave that guy out on Highway 92, that little sign in front of me. I shouldn't have. I know I shouldn't have done it, but I did it. So maybe there's no condemnation for me because of what happened two hours ago. You know how it is. I mean, we're up and we're down. So what happens is we start looking inward. But if you omit that phrase, you're not going to be looking inward. You're going to be looking upward. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. Can I ask you a question this morning? Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? No condemnation. No condemnation. That's why it's important to make note of that. Probably that was added by a scribe later because of older manuscripts not including those who walk according to the flesh. Now, I know I'm still in verse one, bear with me. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say there is therefore now no failure for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not true because two hours ago, you failed when that guy pulled out in front of you. It doesn't say in Christ Jesus, there are no mistakes for those who are in Christ. Nor does it say, therefore, there is now no consequence for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because you could do something, you could sin in a certain area, and you could bear a temporal circumstance. You could bear a temporal challenge. It says there's therefore now no condemnation. That's judgment. Now, that is the strongest word Paul can use for judgment. There's no strong divine judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, the believer will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We call it the the reward seat or Bema seat, B-E-M-A, seat of Christ. And you're going to receive a reward, I will too, for the things done in the body. Yes, there are consequences for unbelievers who will be judged and condemned before God because they didn't let Jesus take their sin. But for those of us in Christ Jesus, judgment is over, man. It's over, woman. It is finished. Judgment's past. It is past tense. In John chapter five, look at it. Jesus said these words. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me. 
Let me ask you a question. Has anybody in here ever heard the words of Jesus? Come on, just show me your hand. Do you believe in Jesus and the one that Jesus was sent by? Come on, and show your hand. All right, so this is for you now. He who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has, here it is, everlasting life. Not will have it, has it right now, present tense, and shall not, look up here, shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I've got a good news announcement for you this morning. Judgment is over for the believer. It's over. It's finished. There is no more judgment. There is no more condemnation for the one who has trusted in Jesus Christ. There is a horrible phrase I hear believers use sometimes. Something bad will happen. Something unfortunate will happen. Like, a t- you know, life takes a bad turn and they say, well, God's punishing me. How many of you have ever heard say, a believer say, well, God's punishing me. I got this sickness. Well, God must be punishing me. Or this happened to me. God's punished me. God is not punishing you, friend. God punished Christ for you so that you never have to be punished. You never have to be condemned. That's past tense. There is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse two, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. God did sin by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Watch this. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh and that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not by us. It's fulfilled in us who do not walk. Did you hear that? We don't fulfill the righteous requirement. It's fulfilled in us. By what? Those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, you remember all those personal pronouns in chapter seven? Remember 47 of them? They're absent in this section. And in their place is a reference to the capital S, spirit. Pneuma hagias. Spirit, breath, who is holy. Notice this. The Holy Spirit up until this point in the book of Romans is mentioned two times in seven chapters. In this one chapter, the Holy Spirit is referred to 20 times. We've just now entered into a new mode of operation. If we were Latin, we would call it the operandus modi, the new time, the new moment. It's a new season. We have moved out of personal pronouns and we've moved into what? A life in the Spirit. No condemnation. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. Now we have, as Paul said, a new capacity because of the Holy Spirit. And now we know and understand what Jesus meant when he said to his disciples. What did he say? He said they were all been out of shape because Jesus would leave it, but be leaving them. And he said, they said, you can't leave us. And he said, you, you, you just came to see us. And he says, it is better. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go, I can't send to you what? The Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send the Holy Spirit to you, the promise of the Father. And Jesus goes on to describe the glorious work of the Holy Spirit, bringing things to remembrance, empowering us for service, strengthening our lives in the kingdom of God. So it's to our advantage. Jesus is not on the planet today. And Paul now in Romans is tapping into that advantage. And he says the law of the Spirit, capital S. Verse four, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, capital S. That is the Holy Spirit. Now, I have to unravel something for you here because it can be a little bit mystifying. Okay? Verses two, three, and four, Paul uses the term law. Did you see it in your Bibles? But he uses law in two different ways, and he means two totally different things by it. So when we think of law, we think of something that's a dictate. We think of a regulatory principle, a regulation. We think of a legal regulatory principle. Like you can't go over the speed limit. That's the law. 
We think of, you can't do this, that's the law. Or we think of it in terms of the law of Moses. You shall not do this, all the stipulations. We think of them as stipulations written in legal parlance. But there's another way in which the word law is used, and that means principle, not A-L, but L-E, principle or driving force or that which motivates or controls. So in verse two, look at it. He says the law of the spirit. That's not the law of Moses. He's not talking about the law of Moses now applied to the spirit. He's not talking about a legal requirement. He's not talking about a legal mandate. He's speaking about a driving principle in the life of a believer, something which motivates the believer. The law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death, which is the principle law, so to speak, the principle driving of sin and death. So when we speak of the law of gravity, it doesn't mean that the United States Constitution wrote gravity into law and therefore gravity exists because it's one of the laws of our country. No, it is a principle. It's an undeniable principle. Or we speak in science of Coulomb's law of electromagnetic force. Or in science, we speak of the law of self-preservation. We mean something different by that. We mean it's a principle. So there's an impulse in us naturally a principle that drives us to do wrong in the old nature. It's, it's natural. It's what you're born with. But now by the Holy Spirit, there's a new impulse. Now by the Holy Spirit, there's a new drive and it drives us to do what's right. That's the idea of law here, not law of Moses. But it's used a second way. And that's in verse three. He's speaking now of the law of Moses. We know, as, what we know is the Old Testament law. Look what he says, for what the law, that's law of Moses, could not do in sending and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the re- righteous requirements of the law, law of Moses, might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So God gave a law. Pastor Chad talked about it last week, but the law couldn't fix me. Like he said in the previous chapter, the problem wasn't with the law. The problem was with me. And somebody said, amen, right? The problem is with you, Craig. And he's right. She's right. It is. The problem was with me. So the law is spiritual, but the law couldn't fix me. He said in the previous chapter, listen to me, the law was unable to fix me. The law could point out I had a problem. The law, like a mirror, could point out I'm dirty, but the law cannot fix what I see. Laws cannot cleanse us. God made that apparent from the very beginning, folks. We should, if we pay attention when we read our Bible, when the children of Israel were on the, the wilderness, when Moses said, I'm gonna go up and I'm gonna hear from God, and the children of Israel said, I don't wanna go near that mountain because of lightning and thunder and noise. They said, Mo, you go. You go, go. Go, buddy, go up there. We're not coming near. You go up and you come back. You listen to God. You tell us what God says and you'll come back down and you give us the word and whatever God tells us, we will do. Watch this. They said to Moses, whatever God tells you to tell us to do, we will do. And that's famous last words. Because God responds. Listen, you don't have to get a golden calf. God already says to Moses, I owe that my people had such a heart to obey. God knew they could not do it before he came down and wrote it on tablets. He already knew their hearts were totally incapable of doing the very thing he's about to require of them. Totally incapable of being obedient. The the driving law whereby we have a standard of reference, that's what the law is to show us how far we fall, but it can't fix us. It was temporary. 
Yes, there were sacrifices that covered over the issue, covered over the sin, dealt with it on a temporary basis until the fullness of time had come, Galatians 4.4, 4, when God would send his own son. He would send his own son. So can I just give you a little recap of Romans 8, 1 through 4? I'm going to give it to you in one statement. Okay, It'll come on the, the slide behind me. Here it is. Through the Holy Spirit, God does in us what Christ has done for us. Through the Holy Spirit, God does in us what Christ has already accomplished for us. Now, let's go to verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded, fleshly minded, only thinking of gratifying your flesh, to be carnally minded is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. Watch this, because the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, is enmity or hostile against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, that's a pretty good description of you and me, B.C., before Christ. Before we were saved, we lived with our mind on the flesh. We gratified fleshly desires, gratified ourselves. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said, don't worry about what you're going to eat. He said, don't worry about what you're going to drink tomorrow, what you're going to wear, for after all of these things, Gentiles seek. That's how the unbelieving world lives, folks. Listen to me. Next slide. The unbelieving world only lives to fulfill fleshly desires. America is run off of the desire to fulfill fleshly desires. The whole world system has one intent, to fulfill fleshly desires. That's how the unbelieving world lives. Now, you and I have what we call certain biological drives. We call them primary drives and secondary drives. Among your primary drives is what we call the air drive. <gasps> the need to breathe. And when you breathe, you oxygenate your bloodstream via your lungs. So you have that basic drive. You're underwater for a while and you got to get up because you got you to do that. If you don't do, you're going to be at the bottom of the pool. Okay? You got to bring oxygen to those cells. Isn't it amazing? And if we don't have oxygen within like a couple minutes, we're all in eternity right now. That's how frail we are. God, we as humans are so frail. So fragile. You have a drive for water. It's a primary drive. You have to keep hydrated because your body's made up of so much water, you'll die without it. You also have a drive to eat, a food drive, which replenishes energy in your cells so your body can grow. You have a sex drive. God put that sex drive or libido within all of us so that you can have posterity, so you can enjoy that with a spouse. You, you can have future generations. All of those things biologically drive a human being. Nothing wrong with them. But if those things control you, you got major problems. If the sex drive now moves from primary just need to driving your life, if you only live for sexual experiences or only culinary experiences, if you only live for the meal, you only think about meals and you only think about eating, or your desire to drink causes you to imbibe substances that are detrimental over the long haul to your body, that's going to be problematic. We talked two weeks ago about your body, soul, and spirit. And listen, having the mind Listen, the soul is either dominated by the spirit or the soul is dominated by the flesh. He's just continuing on that and explaining a bit further. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Look at it. But, now this is the new you. That's the old you. That's you, BC. But you are not in the flesh, 
but in the Spirit, if indeed the Holy Spirit of God or the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So when you say yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes within you. And if Christ is in you, the body's dead. The flesh control. The impulses don't control you anymore when you are in Christ. If Christ is in you, Paul said the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is what? Life because of righteousness. But if the spirit, I'm I'm following right along in your Bible, of life, the spirit of life who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. He said, now things have changed. Now you live differently. Now you think differently. Now you want to please God. You want to serve God. You're in a new mode of operation. Man, I remember, church, that is one of the first indications that my life was changing. Do you remember that? When I was 16 years old, I didn't want to go to church before I was saved. I never wanted to darken the doors of a church before I was saved. I had to go to church two times a year, Christmas and Easter, with my family. We went to the Baptist church. It was down the road from us in, in Saudi Daisy, to Lakeside, Tennessee, Hickson, Tennessee. And I remember I never wanted to go to church. But the moment I came to Christ and got born again, suddenly, all of a sudden, I remember that afternoon, literally after I did it, all of a sudden, instantly, no one had called me, no church member had to call me, no pastor had to call and follow up with me on Monday and tell me to be there on Wednesday. Nobody had to call me the next week and say they miss me and the next week and say they miss me and the next week and say they miss me. I'm telling you from the moment I gave my life to Christ, I said, I got to get to a church. I got to get around the people of God. I got to get around the things of God. I had such a ferocious appetite for the scriptures. I would get an old school VHS recorder. I'd go across the street and sit in front of an 88 year old mentor. I'd put a VHS tape in there, set her down in front of it and I would record her talking for four hours. I'd go back to my home. I'd up in my room getting the VHS and I would rewind it and listen and take notes ferociously. And everything she said, I would write down. Whatever she said, I would write down. All of a sudden, I wanted to read the Bible. I didn't want to read the Bible before. I never thought about God before. I wouldn't have understood it if I tried to read it. But all of a sudden, I had this craving for it. So I think differently. I, I see differently. Everything becomes different. We think and we live differently. We have a new desire. But watch this. Not only do we have a new desire, we have a new capability, a capability put within us by the Holy Spirit to do that which we desire. So he gives us a desire, then he gives us the desires. He puts a new desire within us, then he gives us a new mode of operation called spirit-filled living, where we desire what we now desire in Christ, and because he put that desire in us, we, he might fulfill that desire in us by giving us the Holy Spirit of God. So we have these new desires to please him, to serve him, a new capacity to do these things. Now watch this. You kind of mix all these things together in a bag. No condemnation. You add to the no condemnation, the Holy Spirit's invigoration. And I'm going to give you a little math. No condemnation plus the Holy Spirit's invigoration equals total life transformation. That's how humans change. That is how human beings change from the inside out. And he's making that evident that this is what every child of God controlled by the Spirit of Christ is in you. The body's dead because of sin, but the Spirit has given life because of righteousness. Listen to me, church. If your religion doesn't change you, then you should change your religion. If you get around somebody and their religion doesn't change them, you should tell them boldly. You need to change your religion. I've always believed this, Pastor Greg. I've always had this in my religion. Really? Has it helped you any? Has it done any good for your marriage? 
Because if not, you might want to think about switching. It's not changed your life. And you'll find that Jesus, unlike a religion, gives you the capacity to serve him, to love him, to, to be changed by him, to walk in him, to enjoy him. And he puts the Holy Spirit within you to do that. He makes you holy. By the way, that's the purpose of the Holy Spirit living in you. Well, why is there a Holy Spirit to make you holy? Wait a minute. I thought God's job was to make me happy. No, it's not his job. The purpose of the Spirit is to make you holy. But can I tell you something? I guarantee you something. Take it to the bank. When you're holy, you'll be happy. You'll be a whole lot happier than unholy people. Best, quickest way to happiness. Can I put it? You put it on your Facebook status today. I don't know if people embrace it. Best, quickest way to happiness. Holiness. Live to serve, to please God, and you'll be the happiest person on the planet. Well, it gets better. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, old King James word here is mortify. I'll get to that in a moment. If you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul is simply saying, look, you have no obligation to your flesh. You have no obligation to the old self. Even though the flesh still wants you to know it's there and demands that you do something for it every day, your flesh will say, what about me? What about me? What about me? Do something for me. What about my needs? Feed me, feed me, feed me, feed me, feed me. You don't owe it anything, Paul said. You have no obligation to the flesh. However, you do have a responsibility and an accountability to the Holy Spirit who lives in you and is working in you. Who was the one that led you to Jesus Christ for salvation? The Holy Spirit. So who do you have an obligation to? The leader. He led you to Christ for salvation. Now you have an obligation to him. And that obligation you, you, you have to discover to be true. So you owe the flesh nothing, but we have a responsibility, let me say it this way, an obligation to the Spirit. Now here's how it works. I think you've discovered this to be true. We are either progressing in the Christian life or we are regressing. Listen, I've discovered that following Jesus is sort of like riding a bicycle uphill. When I stop pedaling a bicycle, I go back. So stay at it, just one foot in front of the other. Meaning you can't ever be on level ground in the Christian life. You're either going backwards or you're going forward. You're never stalled out. And so what happens is, as a believer, you have to keep walking in the Lord. There was an old um, Native American gentleman who was trying to describe after he came to Christ what it was like living after the Spirit, but, but also having the flesh. And he said this. He said, I have, I have two dogs living inside of me, a little dog and a big one, and they're always fighting each other. And his friend said, well, which one wins? And the old gentleman looked at him and he said, whichever one I feed. The little one, he meant the spiritual life. The big one, they'd been there a long time. That's his sinful flesh. But if you feed the spirit, you're essentially starving the flesh. If you feed the flesh, you're starving the spirit. So you feed the spirit every morning, it'll win. Listen, you'll find more spiritual dominance than fleshly dominance in your life when your mind is on what the spirit desires. So you feed the spirit and you starve the flesh. You have to do it. Listen, it's also like this. Our spiritual lives are like planting a flower garden. If you want flower, beautiful flowers, you got to do a little gardening, don't you? You have to use the right fertilizer, right kind of soil, right kind of conditions, right temperatures. Now, weed, on the other hand, you ain't got to worry about it. Anybody ever went out and planted some weeds in your yard? You ain't cultivating no weed. Don't, don't take that out of YouTube. <laughs> You don't have to really try to get weeds to grow. You know what you got to do to get weeds to grow? 
walk away. You know what you got to do to get your flesh to grow? Breathe. Live. Live. Just live and your flesh is going to grow. Meaning, your old flesh, your flesh grows naturally. We were by nature children of wrath, even as others, Paul said in Ephesians 2, it was our nature. That nature's now been crucified. The old has been dead. But that big dog, that flesh still barking. So feed the spirit because you don't owe the flesh anything. You have no obligation to the flesh. So he says, put it to death. Everybody say, put it to death. The old theologians called it mortifying the flesh. I wish we'd recapture that phrase. That's a sort of a Puritan term based on the language of Paul in the old King James Version. He said, put it to death, mortify it, kill it. Listen to me, church. Sin is a kill or be killed battle. You're either killing it or it's killing you. That's it. No peaceful coexistence. So if you're struggling with errors of your flesh and you're saying, well, you know, I've been dealing with this for a long time, so I'm going to cut back on those activities. I'm going to do it less. You're never going to win. You have to starve it. If you have some fleshly appetite, you can't cut back on it. You have to starve it. You have to literally rearrange everything in your life to not feed it, to not give it way. You have to close the door, you have to lock it, you have to walk away from it, and you have to feed the Spirit and keep on feeding the Spirit. That's the key to victory. You starve that puppy to death. As it's barking, 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 you let it die. You have to let it die. So, I created a little two-by-two graphic with my hand this week, and so I had my wonderful admin assistant, Tony. Uh, I had her create it and make it look better. Based on Romans 8, 12, we have an obligation not to the flesh but to God. So I made this for us. I would like for a few moments to expound on the connection between God's acceptance of us and the obedience that follows. So if I see my continuum here, I have high acceptance of the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Christ. On the bottom... I have low acceptance of that reality. On the left quadrant, I have low obedience to Christ. And on the right quadrant, I have high obedience to Christ. Let's start in the top left. If I have high acceptance, know that Jesus loves me, know that I'm the righteous of God in Christ, and yet then my heart does not respond in obedience to desire to follow and obey Jesus, I am a Jesus fan. I believe in cheap grace. I have cheapened the grace of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call it Christianity without, uh, Christianity without Christ is, is Christianity, or Christianity without discipleship is Christianity without Christ. It's a high cost. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. We don't cheapen the grace of God. Now let's go down to bottom left. If I have low acceptance that I don't even know God's accepting me through Jesus Christ, through faith, and I have very low obedience to God, then I consider God irrelevant. I'm what we call a functional atheist. That means I functionally believe there is a Jesus, but it comes no, has no bearing on my life. has no bearing on the way I live my life, the way I obey Christ. Let's go to the bottom right. If I have a low acceptance of God's gift of righteousness, meaning I grew up in very legalistic environments, and I have very hard time realizing in America you have to earn a living, don't you? You earn a living? So imagine now trying to tell an 18-year-old you don't have to earn salvation. It becomes really difficult in the capitalistic world, doesn't it? It's really challenging. So you don't have to earn it. It's freely given, but then you don't have a high obedience based on low acceptance. You become a legalist. You become fear-based. That I got to do more so that Jesus, what? Accepts me. He loves me. Now, what does it mean to be a disciple? It means that I have the understanding of that it took Jesus a high cost 
to provide salvation for me. And out of that, I have no obligation to the flesh. I have a heart that desires to obey Christ to the end. That's what we call costly grace, what we call a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, where do you find yourself on that continuum? He goes in verse 14, For as many are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God, children of God, sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now notice, friends, how the language changes. It goes to sons of God, adoption, children of God. I don't want to spend too long, but the term adoption is very important in the New Testament. Paul uses adoption five times in 13 letters. And it means to be placed as an adult son or an adult child. In the Roman world, adoption had really amazing, interesting ramifications. So if you were adopted into a Roman family, okay, you immediately, as the adopted son or daughter, lost all the rights and privileges and debts of your previous family. They were gone. And you were given all the rights and privileges of the new family upon adoption. In fact, if you were an adopted child in the Roman kingdom, you had the same right as a natural child in a Roman household. You even became a co-heir when there was an inheritance laws or when land was passed out. If the children inherited an estate, the adopted child get as much as the natural born child got fully. So we became children of God. We were born again. And Jesus uses uh, regeneration language. Paul doesn't use regeneration language here. Paul uses adoption language. Placed as adult sons and daughters. So we receive the spirit of adoption, verse 15. By whom what? We cry, Abba, Father. That's an Aramaic term, but it's also a Hebrew term. Abba. Everybody say Abba. If you go to Israel, you'll hear that frequently in the street. In fact, if you're in Jerusalem, I was there years ago, you'll hear these little kids crying out and you'll go, I know what that word is because I read my Bible. I read Romans 8. You'll hear kids, Western Wall, you'll hear it nonstop. Abba, 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 Abba. It's about the only thing I could pick up in Hebrew, right? And I've learned a little bit of Hebrew since then, but Abba, Abba. When you say, our father, he said, now Jesus said, when you're praying to God, you say, Abba, Father. It's very different from what Jews pray. Rabbis, before Jesus, never taught their Talmudim. Talmudim just means disciples. Their students to have a personal relationship with God. It was very formal. It was very distant. It was very remote. God was kind of put off by humans. And so when they pray, did you know Orthodox Jews still don't call God God when they pray? They don't call him by his name, Yahweh. You know what Orthodox Jews do? Still here today in the Orthodox community. They will refer to the Lord or God as Hashim, Hashim, Hashim. You know what Hashim is? Hebrew for the name. So when you talk about God, you say the name did this. You don't say the name, you say the name. The name did that. The name, Hashim, Hashim. How different when you pray according to Jesus, our father, daddy, daddy, Abba. So intimate, so different. You imagine what happened when Jesus was teaching the model prayer, what happened to the, 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 the Pharisees when they heard him say, this is how you pray, our Father. I mean, their mouths are on the floor. And the Jews, typically, when they pray, it's very formal. I've told you before, but the typical Jewish prayer, Barak hata Adonai ilahe numalak ulum. What is that? Blessed, he says, are you Lord God, King of the universe. It's recognizing sovereignty. It's recognizing deity, control, and immensity, but not intimacy. You want intimacy? You do this, Abba, Father, Daddy. Well, we've been adopted. 
So before you came to Christ, your relationship to God was Hashim, Meliaka, Olum. But now you've come to Christ and it's Abba. The relationship has changed. Jesus has changed the relationship. In Christ, you're adopted into the family. So it's not God and human anymore. It's father and child. It's not God and humanity anymore. It's dads and sons and daughters. What a privilege. We cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God and if children, then heirs and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That's the Roman adoption idea. Watch this, you ready? Let's keep going. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now let me translate that idea for you. You ready? Everything Jesus received by divine right, you and I have received by divine grace. Now we could think about that from now until growth phases this Thursday. Everything Jesus received by divine right, you and I have received by divine grace. As adopted sons and daughters of God, that includes glory. Everybody say glory. Future glory. Even though we suffer temporarily, Paul said, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul said, for our light affliction, which is for a moment, will what? will become far exceeding an eternal weight of glory. So here we are. We have this affliction. Anybody had any afflictions this side of eternity? Paul says it's a light affliction. Oh, you don't know my affliction. It's pretty heavy. Well, Paul got beat up a whole bunch and got his head cut off. It's pretty heavy. Probably harder than yours. And you know what he called it? Light affliction. Folks, you've got to let the Scripture speak to you. Seriously, seep into the depths of your soul. He said it's a light affliction. Why? When you put our suffering on a scale on one side and you put His glory that we're going to experience very soon, folks, 100 years from now, none of us will be on the planet. We'll all be in the midst of this glory. Just a little while longer, friends. Just a little while longer. He said when you put our suffering right here and then you put the glory that's going to be revealed on it, not even a, it's a light affliction. Nothing to be compared to the eternal glory that's coming. This is, he said, verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subject to futility, not willingly. The creation didn't want to be subjected, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption and to the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Now notice some of the wording here in these verses that we just read. Verse 18, sufferings. Verse 19, sufferings. Verse 20, futility. Verse 21, bondage of corruption. Now when God created the universe, what did he say after he made it? He looked at it and he said it was... But he didn't stay good, did it? He said it was good. What good we had experienced a fall. Sin was introduced because a serpent named Satan enticed the humans, the first humans to disobey God. And Paul put it in Romans 5, by one man sin entered the world and death through sin and death spread to all men because all of sin. That's not creation's fault. Adam and Eve were to blame, but because they were the head of creation, creation got blamed too. Creation was subjected to futility. 
creation was corrupted because mankind was corrupted. Adam's fault. Now the creation is subjected to futility, to emptiness, to curses. People say, Craig, how do you respond to natural evil? I got asked that on the radio this week. I get the problem of evil with humans and their free will, but what do you, how do you respond to natural disaster? Right there, Romans 8, 21. It's subjected to futility. It doesn't mean God's directing hurricanes to kill people and wipe off cities. It's just a part of the fallen earth. It's a fallen earth. It's in birth pains. It's groaning. The bondage. One of the most plain examples of this is in physics, y'all. In the second law of thermodynamics, which is what we call entropy, it says in an isolated system, energy is lost over time. Things do not stay in their constant state. They deteriorate. They degenerate. We experience that daily. Every day I look in the mirror, I'm more deteriorated. Is anybody else degenerating? I'm degenerating. I'm getting worse. On the outside, it's looking worse and worse. Okay, it's not looking better and better. Worse. And notice what he says. It's happening all around us. Second law of thermodynamics. It's in action. We're now subjected to futility. Verse 23. And not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit in this good news, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. He says we've been given a foretaste, what he calls first fruits, a foretaste. That's how the Bible puts it, a preview of coming attractions. All I can say, friends, is I still remember and I still experience what it was like to come into a relationship with Christ. When I first came into a relationship with Christ, it was real, it was transformative, it was awesome, it was all I could think about, and the Holy Spirit did that. He was giving me a foretaste of what heaven's gonna be like one day. He said, now I see through a glass darkly, I see through a glass darkly, but nonetheless, I still have tasted it. And one of the reasons I keep going, one of the reasons I'm motivated to keep going is because, man, I've tasted it already. I've already received the first fruits of the Spirit, and that's caused me to groan inwardly because I I know what it tastes like. So y'all, I grew up on Hamburger Helper in Tennessee, okay? I don't know if y'all know what Hamburger Helper is. My mom loved that because you could just whip it up real quickly. You put some ground beef together. We do ground turkey in my house. It's in a box. And I pretty much lived for about 10 years of my life off a Hamburger Helper. But I remember when my parents as a teenager took me to dinner at Red Lobster and they gave me steak, cheddar bay biscuits, and a lobster. Do you know how hard it was to go back to eating Hamburger Helper every night of my life? Because I tasted something different. We have a taste. Paul says that's why we keep going because we have tasted of a coming kingdom. Think of it this way. First fruits. Remember the 12 spies who went into the land of Canaan? They got the fruit of the land. They got these big old grapes, bigger than their body. They stuck it between their shoulder blades. A couple guys carried it all the way back to the children of Israel. They brought it back to the camp of Israel and said, this is the land flowing with milk and honey. We've tasted it and here are the first fruits. That means you better get up out of your wilderness and we better take on what God has already provided for us. We've sat here long enough. There's a first fruit right here to get your taste buds going, to get you acclimated to what you're gonna eat in the land. So I want you to get up children of Israel and let's go we have we have what we have tasted the fruit of the spirit and we are waiting for the full adoption folks I could preach on Romans 8 till the cows come on verse 23 we ourselves grown watch this eagerly waiting for the adoption the redemption of our body in other words we've been adopted into the family but the full reward of our adoption has not yet come it's a whole new body a resurrected body 
Remember how in Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 he described death? He said if our earthly bodies, these tents, they flatter in the wind. Our earthly tent, these bodies are destroyed. He said we have a building from God without hands, made without hands, eternal in the heavens. And right after that he said we groan for that. We tasted and now we're groaning for the full adoption of the transformation even of our physical body. Why? Because he's put eternity in our hearts. Verse 24, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one hope when he still sees? If it's already been given to you and you see it, you don't have hope for it. It's yours. Hope is not hope if it's seen. But if we hope, verse 25, for what we do not see, then we eagerly await for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself, man, this is good news. We don't know what to pray for, even though we're groaning on the inside. We don't know what to pray for. The Spirit himself makes intercession for us. What? With groanings which cannot be uttered. Literally, unintelligible speech. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for you and I according to the will of God. Now watch this, church. I'm almost going to land this plane. We've already heard of three groanings. Did you notice them? Creation groans. Creation's waiting for the curse to be lifted. We groan. Believers groan. And the more we get older... We groan more, okay? You get up in the morning, some of y'all groan for the first six or eight minutes. All day long for some of us, we groan, we long, we hope for. And now we have the Holy Spirit groaning. Are you with me? I want you to just notice all that groaning. You know why I want you to notice it? We have the first fruits of the Spirit and we groan. Next slide. The assumption most people make is that the Holy Spirit replaces our groaning. But the surprise of the Christian life is that those who have the Spirit groan the most. The more Spirit you get, the more groaning happens in your life. If you have filled with the Spirit, you're going to groan all the time. You're going to groan left, groan right. You are groaning for the redemption of your body. This is it. Now, what in the world does that mean? The Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings. I'm glad you asked. He's referring to what Paul in Corinthians talks about, praying in the Spirit. We call it the gift of tongues. We call it praying in the Spirit. That part of our language is a direct link. Our prayer language is our ability to communicate directly from our spirit to God's Spirit. Do you all know that language is a a pact, right? P-A-C-T? It's an agreement. Language is a covenant. So the covenant you and I share together in America is called English. That's what we've agreed to. If you grow up in this nation, you have to agree to that. That's a pact. Meaning, there are other languages, but you and I don't have that agreement. I don't have the agreement with this nation to speak Spanish. I want to speak Spanish, but I don't, that's not the pact that we have. We don't have that pact. But if we did, we could do this Sunday morning in a multilingual way, right? We could do all sorts of different languages. And that's what heaven's going to be like. All kinds of different languages speaking. But we have a very narrow pact called English. So if in English I were to say the word low, that means the opposite of high. But if you're a Hebrew speaker and I say the word low, it means the opposite of yes. So yes in Hebrew is kin, no in Hebrew is low. But that's a different pact. So if I say low to you, you go down there. If I say to Hebrew, low, you're like, no, why? Different pact, different covenant, different understanding. So let's say I have an understanding with you, a code, and we're going to come up with our own language at DP. So I'm going to say to you after church, Uzzawaza, Jazzawaza. And when I say Uzzawaza, Jazzawaza to you, that will mean let's go and find a restaurant and sit down and have a meal. 
Nobody else will know that. So I look at you in the lobby and I say, Uzza wuzza, jazza wazza. And your response is, surface murphus, calorix flex. <laughs> so I look at you and say, Uzza wuzza, right? Jazza wazza. You look and you say, surface murphus, calorix flex, which means we'll go, but you're buying, okay? <laughs> so nobody in the church knows it means that. So I say, Uzza wuzza, jazza wazza, surface murphus, calorix flex. We come up with a whole different way of communication. Nobody gets it, but we do do it. Do you know that in the Spirit, you and I are afforded a way to communicate to God that bypasses our intellect? This is why people don't want to be filled with the Spirit because they want their mind to be fruitful. They're not willing to submit in humility to something their mind can't understand. But God affords to us an opportunity to communicate to Him in the Spirit. Paul said, my understanding is unfruitful, but my spirit is being built up. My mind doesn't know what I'm saying because there's no gift of intercession here, but it's a means by which your spirit can directly communicate according to the will of God. Amazing, huh? Amazing. Verse 27, he searches the heart, knows what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 28, just so rich. We're going to land it. Verse 28, so powerful. We come to this verse of scripture that if I were to take a little poll of how many of you have this as your favorite verse, Let's just do that real quick. How many of you are willing to say Romans 8, 28 is at least top three verses for you in your life? Okay, I thought that would happen. God bless you. I see your hand. <laughs> I'd Googled last night favorite Bible verses in the world. <clears throat> this one, Romans 8, 28, makes the top three worldwide. You got Psalm 23, Lord's my shepherd. You can look at it this way. If all of the scripture were a meal, a feast for your soul, Romans 8 is the main course. Verse 28 is the entree. It gets right down to it. One person called Romans 8.28 a soft pillow for a tired heart. So I stole it and titled my message. <laughs> a soft pillow for a tired heart. That's Romans. I have laid my head on this soft pillow many, many nights. The reason it's so great, verse 28. There's a lot of things I don't know about life. There's a lot of things God allows and I don't know why. And I get people say, well, why would God allow? And I'm like, don't ask me. I'm not God. I don't know. I'm in it with you. I have no idea why he allowed it. There's just a lot of things I don't know. But life is not haphazard as a child of God. And whenever there are things you don't know, listen, church, you have to gravitate and hold on to the things you do know. You have to learn to do that as a, a child of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now that little phrase, all things work together, it's one word in the official language. And you know what it's translated as? Synergized. So watch this. I don't know if you've ever heard it explained this way. God and His power and His providence causes the things in life, even the things that seem to be haphazard, to be synergized. You know what synergy is when you have two or more things that have a relationship with each other. They get interacted with one another and they produce a greater result than the sum of those things. That's what synergy is. God causes all things to happen in your life to work together for those who love God. So God is working together all of those elements, things you know about, things you don't know about, things you can't understand, things you can't figure out. But listen, God says, I have a result and you can't see the result and you wish 
wish God would tell you what the result is, but that's where faith comes in, child of God. You trust God based on the character of God. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, God says, thoughts of peace to give you a future and a hope. God said that to a group of people who are wandering in the wilderness in Babylon and saying, how could this possibly be good? We are in Babylon, man. We've been taken away from our homes. Our temple has been sacked. The city has been destroyed. It's been burned with fire. We're out in the country. We are slaves of another nation. Our covenant God has turned his back on us. How could it be good? And God says, I cause all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Y'all, my dad's a farmer now. And a couple weeks ago, he gave me an awesome bag full of tomatoes. You say tomato, I say tomato. They were awesome. He didn't buy them. He he grew them. But I took them home. They were awesome. I'm not saying that so you all grow tomatoes and give me bushels of them next fall or next spring or summer. But but if you want to do it, do it. So I took them home and I poisoned them and I ate them. I poisoned them. What do you mean you poisoned them? Well, I put something on them that it's in its pure forms called poison. I put a mixture of sodium and chlorine on the tomatoes. Sodium in its pure form will kill you. It's poison. Chlorine in its pure form will kill you. It's poison. But if you put them two together at just the right measurement, you get sodium chloride called table salt. So it's not poisonous any longer. Why? It's the combination. There are things that happen to you in life and if you only look at it in one way and only see it in one season, it's poisonous. It looks like it's going to destroy you, kill you, take you out. But let me tell you, you serve a God who when you surrender to the Lordship of Jesus is able to take together the elements of your life, the things that by themselves would be poisonous, and he synergizes them together, and he makes the taste a little bit sweeter. You thought it was going to be good to eat the fruit that God had for you. He took the very things that the enemy used to destroy you, he synergized them, put them together, and put them a little as a cherry on top of the feast and the meal that he wants to give you in eternity. This is what it means to say, Lord, we know all things work together. You don't see it now, but wait for the taste. It's coming. Aren't you glad it doesn't say most things work together? Come on, anybody glad it don't say most things? It says all things. And I hope you know that. There are certain truths you need to go and know to get through life. Because there's a plenty of times you're going to look in the future and say, I don't know what's happening. I don't understand it. It's dark. So that's where you rest on what you know. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. You're going to go through something. Oh, wait a minute. Isn't the promise all things work together for good? This isn't good. It doesn't say all things work together to be comfortable. It says good as God defines good. Ask Joni Erickson Tata, who's been confined to a wheelchair her whole life since her diving accident. And she says, God has confined me to this wheelchair. I know it this side of eternity. Because God will sometimes allow what he hates to produce what he loves. And he said, Joni, what are you going to do when you get to heaven and get new legs? And she said, I'm going to bend down on resurrected knees and worship Jesus for all eternity. For we know that all things work together for the good. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Son. And those he predestined, he called. And those he justified, he glorified. That's the five chain links in God's providence. He's predestined you to be conformed to Jesus. He's elected you to salvation. He's called you in Christ. He's justified you and he will glorify you. That takes us through verse 30. That is the Jesus 
that Paul paints a beautiful picture of in Romans chapter 8. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.